0: My name is John Kane, and this podcast is about old people having fun. One of the great things about getting older is that you have more time to spend doing the things you want to do instead of the things you have to do. The person I'll be introducing you to today, Dave Kreider, spends a lot of time doing the things he likes to do. Dave's 73 years old, but has not slowed down at all. He is the Iowa Chief Investigator for MUFON. He has investigated over 150 UFO sightings since 2010. He built his own kayaks. He uh, is out in them often. He's an avid fossil collector. He's an artist. Uh, He's written several books. He's a member of over a half dozen uh, environmental organizations. On top of all that, he still keeps his home-based business running. And as busy as he is, I hope he's found time today to take my call. Dave, are you there?
1: Yes. Hi, John.
0: First of all, thanks for taking time to do the podcast.
1: Sure. I think this should be fun.
0: Dave, as I noted in the introduction, uh, you're involved in a lot of interesting activities. But what I find most interesting is the work you've done as a UFO investigator. So if you don't mind today, I would like to focus my questions on that subject. Uh, First of all, I'd like to know how you became interested in, in being a UFO investigator.
1: Well, my story is pretty much the same as almost every investigator I know, and that is that most of us have had an interest in outer space since our childhoods. You know, you and I grew up during the exciting times of the U.S. and Soviet space race, and I knew every Mercury and Gemini astronaut's and the spacecraft they flew. Um, I also remember being thrilled when I read about Percival Lowell's discovery of canals on Mars that he interpreted as artificial structures built by advanced civilization. And then, of course, there was the now famous case of the abduction of Betty and Barney Hill that I read about in my parents' Reader's Digest. They were apparently taken aboard a spaceship and underwent surgical extractions of sperm and eggs. I mean, that's going to get a young, hormone-driven kid's attention.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I remember that story. It was bizarre, but uh, very interesting.
1: Yeah, it does seem a bit bizarre, but their separate hypnotic regression sessions seem to corroborate their stories. Uh, By the way, Betty's niece, Kathleen Martin, now heads up Mufon's ERT team, and ERT stands for Experiencer Research Team, because not every interaction with extraterrestrials is necessarily an abduction. You know, some people claim that they have telepathic communications with extraterrestrials, for example, so... ERT covers all situations. I mean, this was all very exciting for an impressionable young person.
0: Okay, we're gonna move ahead in time now. You're no longer an impressionable young person. (laughs) I, I guess we could say now you're an impressionable old person. What got you from the point of being interested in these things to actually becoming involved?
1: I was contemplating my retirement at the age of 61 that I started thinking about becoming a MUFON investigator. I'm not a joiner, and I would never join a club that would have me as a member. (laughs) But the chance of becoming an investigator using scientific techniques is just too much to turn down. So I joined MUFON in 2009, and after a little over a year... I became an investigator. And in 2010, I got assigned my first case, which was filed by a witness in Dubuque, Iowa. And that case was a streaking meteor that was seen across five <clears throat> states. The pieces of that meteoroid found by school children and others fetched huge sums of money.
0: Yeah, that's great. Uh, and from there, you went on to investigate 150 cases. Um, could you describe one or two of the more interesting cases that you investigated?
1: Sure. Um, I'll tell you about two cases, which are featured on my website, com. that you designed, John. Uh, If anyone's looking for a a good web designer, John's your man. (laughs)
0: Thanks, (laughs) Dave.
1: The cases I'll tell you about happened in 2015. Each year, MUFON highlights the best case of the year. Uh, the first case I'll tell you about received a nomination for top 10 case. And the second case I'll talk about was selected as one of the six top cases of 2015. And it had, that's out of approximately 6,000 entries. Uh, the first case was filed by a witness in Britt, Iowa, <clears throat> And it's a, a small town of about 4,000 people, located in north-central Iowa, near Crystal Lake. It's a railroad town, and each year it hosts the National Hobo Convention, where they crown the hobo king and queen. It also has a hobo museum on Main Street. And, of course, I had to visit that museum, and was surprised that I knew one of the hobos, who eventually... Came Hobo King.
0: <laughs> he, he was probably a former PhD candidate from the university.
1: <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. Um, yeah, um, my old upholstery shop was located by the old train depot in Iowa City, and used to stop by to stash his gear. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Britt Brit has an unusually high number of UFO sightings, but few reports are ever filed. Why is that? Um, I'm not completely sure, so I'll have to speculate. Um, first, this area is very conservative, and people are independent and not prone to bringing attention to So, And second, several people I talked to in Brits said that sightings are so common that folks just take them for granted. Anyway... A group of people in Brit were outdoors having a lunar eclipse viewing party. At around 9.30, just before the moon was in total eclipse, things began to happen. They noticed a triangular object appear in the southwest that was heading toward them, and it eventually passed overhead. As the object was approaching, They observed a second triangular object coming from a position slightly below and slightly south of the first triangle. It began to ascend and move toward the first object, and their flight paths nearly intersected. The witnesses thought that the second triangle was targeting the first and that they might actually collide. So, three of us investigators traveled to Brett's and interviewed the first two witnesses who were close friends. Uh, After the interview, we contacted the third witness by phone, and she corroborated the first two witnesses, you know, to a T. So this case was very interesting because they had three very credible, educated (laughs) witnesses that observed up to 14 triangular objects over a period of four hours. Uh, the case was so compelling that two years later, two members of MUFON, a friend and I, we traveled to Crystal Lake and set up camp for two consecutive nights to observe the night sky. Uh, we didn't see anything, but I talked to a young woman who was camped out there and with five young children, and she related a story that was harrowing. Uh, she was a teacher that commuted to Cedar Rapids. And she said that when she was coming home to Brit one night, a bright light descended and followed her for 20 minutes to her home. And she said that she was really traumatized by that event.
0: Wow, I don't blame her. That sounds scary. Um, <laughs> yeah. Pretty interesting case. Uh, can you possibly uh, time to tell us about another case?
1: Oh, yeah. Um another case that was interesting took place about 30 miles west of Iowa City in Marengo in June of 2015. And this sighting qualified as a close encounter because the object was within 500 feet of the witnesses. And Mufan considers any object within 500 feet a close encounter because it's possible to judge its size and distance. Um, so The story goes, a man and a woman, they were traveling from Williamsburg to Marengo one evening, and they noticed the object as they approached town. They stopped at a gas station on the highway to Marengo and observed a giant triangular object across the road. And this was one of those cases where they were able to, or I should say, we were able to establish the distance, the object, size, and above the horizon with quite a bit of accuracy. And it turned out that that triangle was about one-quarter the size of a football field.
0: Wow. Now, you were doing this as an investigator for MUFON. Um, Could you explain what MUFON is?
1: Yeah, Sure. Uh, MUFON stands for the Mutual UFO Network. It's a volunteer organization that was established in 1969, and it's grown into the largest UFO investigative organization in the world. When the organization began, it was called the Midwest UFO Network, but it grew beyond the Midwest borders. Uh, they wanted to keep the same acronyms, so <clears> they <throat> called it the Mutual UFO Network.
0: So it's a big organization?
1: Yeah. In fact, MUFON currently has around 4,000 members, around 600 field investigators. It's represented in all 50 states and a couple of dozen countries. Um, they have a database of over 100,000 UFO reports. They have a monthly journal, a TV show that aired for a couple of seasons on the History Channel called Hangar One. It also
0: has an annual symposium. Uh, So it's been around then, what, over 50 years? Uh, That That's a long time for a volunteer organization to survive. How has it managed to function that long?
1: Well, I think there are two main ingredients that allow MUFON to survive this long. It's structure and the fact that it's an investigative organization. Cogs come and go, but the structure remains. Since I've been a member, there have been four changes of the international director alone. The other thing that allows us to survive is that we investigate all cases. No other organization does this, to my knowledge. You know, organizations such as the National UFO Reporting Center, uh, most people know it as NORFORC. That's the uh, acronym. They simply catalog cases, whereas we determine a sighting of a a bird, a plane, or unidentified.
0: Sounds interesting. Um, Have you ever been to any of the MUFON conferences?
1: Yeah, I attended a conference in 2011 called the International UFO Congress. It was in Tempe, Arizona. And that was held at the Casino Resort on the uh, Havasupai Indian Reservation. And just having this event in the Southwest was a, a big allure for me because I love the desert scenery and the climate.
0: Um, now, so if somebody wants to become an investigator, uh, how do they go about doing that?
1: Well, first, they have to become a on member. Uh, I'm not sure what the yearly membership is now because I'm a lifetime member, but... I think it's around $40. And after you become a member, you have to buy the MUFON manual, costing about $150. You have to study the manual and then take the online open book test. But just because you pass the test, you aren't automatically an investigator. Uh, You have to first be interviewed by the state director or chief investigator. Uh, They make a determination then as to whether or not, you're you're qualified. They look to see, for example, if you have a criminal record or anything else that might disqualify you. And after all that, you're still required to satisfactorily complete five investigations with another certified investigator. So it could be a year-long process to become certified. And we just recently certified a new investigator in
0: Cedar Rapids. I should mention here that uh, if someone does join MUFON, they will have the added benefit of getting to listen to you since you're a regular presenter at their meetings.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm not so sure that's a
0: benefit. Oh, be <laughs> uh, well, I think I'm sure it is, actually. But Anyway, so, so how does it work? If someone wants... Uh, or to report something, they, they see something they think might be a UFO. How do they go about doing that?
1: Well, if someone wants to report a sighting and they haven't heard of MUFON, uh, they'll probably go online, uh, search, uh, you know, they might type in something like, report a UFO, and that will take them to a couple of UFO organizations, including MUFON. And once they get to MUFON, the MUFON webpage, they will then be asked to fill out an online form uh, and include their names, contact information, and a short description of the event. It then goes to the national headquarters, and then from there it's sent to the state director or chief investigators. Um, all the cases that get sent to Iowa uh, directed to me, and I parcel them out to the field investigators depending on the location of the event, of course, I can assign the case to myself or put myself down as a secondary investigator on any case.
0: I see now. Um, Okay, now we have a report. Uh, What happens next?
1: Um, It depends on the classification of the case. Uh, Mufan uses the it's called the Valet Classification System, developed by Jacques Belay back in the 1950s, I believe. And the group classification go from a simple flyby or lights in the sky all the way to close encounters. Um, if we get a high-profile Category 3 case where there might be physical evidence such as a <coughs> landing or a crop circle or a direct encounter with an entity, that will probably involve the STAR team. On uh, STAR team, that's, that's our quick response team.
0: Yeah. Have you ever had a report of a landing?
1: Yeah, actually, we had a landing case last summer in Burlington, Iowa, which is in my territory. Um, the Iowa State Director, Greg Anderson, Six hours from Council Bluffs, Iowa, to assist in the investigation. Uh, We checked the area for, you know, ionizing radiation and electric and magnetic fields, Uh, but they were all at normal background levels, so we did not take soil samples. But the photos I took with my infrared camera showed an orb that traveled from one location to another. And Usually, you know, people who report orbs, they usually turn out to be just dust particles reflecting light or camera artifacts. But all those possibilities were ruled out. Those orbs were out there. Uh, the orbs showed up in two separate photos taken 13 seconds apart. So uh, it was pretty exciting. Anyway, back to your question once we. Receive the case, we look it over, develop some questions, to ask, and then contact the witness by email. If they respond, we try to set up a phone call or uh, a face-to-face interview. Um, we do our investigation, give them a classification such as UAV. Uh, we used to call them U- UFOs, you know, but that comes with too much baggage, so. We use the uh, classification of UAV, and that stands for Unidentified Aerial Vehicle. Or we can give it an IFO, it means identified object, or, or a hoax. It gets submitted then, uh, and then I approve all cases that are completed. Uh, <laughs> incidentally, we get very few hoaxes, and about 80% of our cases turn out to be identified.
0: Great. Well, hopefully now that uh, we know what to do if we spot a UFO, or what to do if we want to investigate one, Um, Dave, do you have uh, any parting wisdom for the potential UFO spotters out there?
1: Uh, Keep your eyes the sky and your feet on the ground.
0: (laughs) That's great advice. Dave, I'm glad you took time today to answer my call, because you provided really a lot of very useful information. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm actually hoping in the future, I'll be able to talk you into returning to discuss some of your other endeavors.
1: Yeah, I'd be glad to.
0: Great. Um, and if you'd like to follow Dave's adventures, check out his website, which is DaveKreiter.com. That's d-a-v-e k-r-e-i-t-e-r.com.